Welcome to Industry Insights, a podcast for, by, and about the film industry from the Berlinale's European Film Market, produced in cooperation with Goethe Institute. Today's episode was developed in collaboration with Locarno Pro, inspired by Locarno's Step-In Think Tank, where in this past year mental health in the film industry was a featured subject. That will also be our topic here today. My name is Johanna Koljonen. I'm a media analyst, strategic consultant and experience designer based in Sweden. And as you know, I'm sharing hosting duties on this podcast with the excellent Nadia Denton, whom you heard in the previous episode. I do feel like I lucked out getting to do this one specifically, though, because the topic of what it would take to make the film industry a healthy work environment has lately been much on my mind. Whether reading about tragic workplace accidents on the news, listening to friends working on film crews being worried that they're too exhausted at the end of a workday to drive their cars home safely, or receiving emails in the middle of the night from production companies I'm consulting with on sustainable strategy, I'm starting to worry that we have a real problem. When we as an industry are struggling, we will work ourselves to the bone to get our projects made. And when we're experiencing a boom of demand and production, like we are right now, then we will never stop working at all. We tend to view sacrifice and suffering as necessary. Indeed, we often idealize suffering as somehow reflecting positively on our artistic credibility. But is that even really how creativity works? And what would it take to change our practices? Today we will meet two guests, Diego Hangartner and Laurence Lascari, to discuss perspectives on these issues from outside and within the industry. And we'll start with Diego, who is a clinical pharmacologist, a certified coach, and an expert on the balance of the creative mind. Diego Hangartner, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So I'm very happy to be to be speaking to you today, and I think I'm going to have to start with the terrifying numbers. So the UK film and TV charity released a study in February 2020, which was presented in Berlin, and, and we think that may have been the first time when mental health was explicitly a topic at an industry forum of this caliber. That report was based on over 9,000 respondents, and in it we learned that over half of British film industry professionals have experienced suicidal ideation. One in ten have attempted to take their life. Film professionals are twice as likely as the average citizen to experience anxiety. And bullying, sexual harassment, social isolation, uh, impossible work hours are significantly shaping this industry. When you look at this data from from your professional perspective, what, what do you see? Well, I see many things. One thing is obviously a situation that is specific to the film industry. However, the recent pandemic has shown us that this is not just something that we're experiencing in the film industry, but it's actually something that has come much more at the forefront of our uh, conscious experience, which has to do with our mental health. And so for me, over the last 40 years, I've been really looking at not necessarily the negative aspects of mental health, but uh, we have a systemic problem that we have been focusing most of our endeavors, particularly as this clinical pharmacologist, as you mentioned, uh, about the negative qualities of the mind. And uh, so obviously, that is something that none of us wants to experience. But unfortunately, we have very little understanding of what actually causes mental well-being. And so... Yes, it has also shocked me, uh, the numbers that particularly the film industry, which is uh, an industry which is obviously high-paced, very creative, and uh, also um, very insecure because you have a job today and maybe you don't have it after the film is over. Uh, And so it doesn't come as a surprise that the film industry is particularly prone to mental unwell-being. So my expertise is really in view of what is mental unwell-being, how to create mental well-being, mental flourishing. And in that sense, I do think that there are two factors that are playing in in the film industry particularly. One is a systemic issue, that you have a high-paced environment where you need to basically promote yourself and get the jobs, and then the jobs are over, and then you get a new uh, assignment, hopefully. Uh, On the other side, I also think that there is very little time for 
what are the factors that cultivate mental well-being, personal well-being? Because from my understanding, mental well-being is actually a skill. It's not something that just happens. I, I, I'm going to ask you many questions about th that, but I, I also have to say I just had an insight as you were speaking uh, about Please. this systemic nature of, of the gig, this gig economy that we're all working in, that it's also about so much of the hiring is about who have you worked with before, because in these incredibly high pressure, um, especially in the high pressure production situations, you have to be able to trust everybody to, to not break, essentially, which creates a really strong economic incentive to never show if you are struggling and never show if, if you are feeling weak, even though perhaps everybody is. Uh, and But there is this fear that I am doing worse than everybody else is, and if I show that, right. I might not be able to work again. So that already is a, is a big structural challenge. Before we go to, to these aspects of, of what is well-being uh, in this context, I guess I, I would like you to just say something about how, how bad is this? Are these numbers exceptionally bad? I mean, I did see that, I mean, if we see in the numbers that, that we are much more likely to experience um, mental health struggles or, or for, for instance, suffer from anxiety than sort of an average citizen, it's still very difficult to, to measure it because I don't know what it's like to work in any other industry necessarily. Is this normal? It's normal to us. Uh, it's common in our environment, but is it common in the world? Well, the, you just mentioned two things. One is, of course, when you're in the system, you think it's normal. And then you just take it as, well, okay, this is just how it is. But if you really look and, and take a step outside of it, it is higher uh, by, depending on also self-harming or suicidal or anxiety than the usual normal jobs. And let's, let's just have a quick look at what are the factors that are actually conducive to well-being. And one has to do with the environment. That's a very important factor. Now, obviously, the film industry, like you were saying, is a gig uh, in, um, economy where you really need to basically promote yourself as the best possible candidate for whatever is a cameraman, lightning or, to or sound or, or even, uh, obviously, actors is just the smallest part of, of the whole. So that in itself is already a very difficult situation. And then also the financial threats that you get. It's, it's basically also a physical uh, situation that you have and then on top of it you have the social it's it's a it's a community that works long hours that uh, works into the night you have to be basically ready for the next day so there is all these different factors that are only i've just mentioned now three factors of what is considered to be six factors one has to do with the mental another one with emotional and the third one with a spiritual dimension so these three are even more effervescent uh, and, and more sort of subtle. But just looking at the real core factors like environment, physical and social con context, it is obvious that this is a much more, um, I would say, threatened environment. And what does it do to you when you're in this constant state of threat? What, what now, does obviously, it do to you? So and also you may want to explain to us who are not expert. Can we even talk about the mind and body separately? I'm I'm uncertain. Things are happening in our body and that is affecting our mental state, right? Correct, but also our mental state has an effect on our body. Yes. We cannot just say that is. And this in the in the in the science we we speak about a bottom up. Basically, you have a neurological system that creates a mental experience. However, and that's the big difference, is that we know now that also a mental state has an effect on your physical. So it's not just one dimension causing, let's say, the mental, uh, the physical causing the mental, but it's also that the mental has an effect on the physical. And we can see that with um, many different factors that, for example, loneliness. What does loneliness do to you? What does stress do to you? It's a physical experience, but it's also a mental experience. And so if you can r regulate one of those dimensions, be that the physical, by going in nature or meeting with people, it also has a, a a mental dimension. However, if you 
practice meditation and you cultivate, for example, a, a routine of mental hygiene, that also has an effect on the body. So it's actually both directions. Our behaviors are an expression of what? Of our mental state. Yes. And also our emotional state, our thinking and the feeling. However, feeling and uh, thinking also has an effect on our actions. So it's actually bidirectional. That's I'm trying really to translate this to something very practical. And I'm thinking, this? if I sleep slightly too little mm -hmm. over long periods of time, right? then I will, then that one night when I get way too little sleep, I w you know, it will affect me much more. If I it have slept well, the then mm. I have a higher tolerance for that one night of, of crisis uh, exactly. know, the following day. Yeah, exactly. But also, yes, if I'm very stressed, then I might not be able to sleep because uh, my mind is racing in the evening and all of those things are happening. Then I'm probably not uh, doing, what did you call it, mental hygiene? That sounds very important. I don't know what it is, but we should talk about that as well. Right. Yes. So, so what, and I was just going in that direction, what is actually happening in the, let's just take the brain, and I'm, I'm not saying that the brain is the only organ that basically feels, because we have also the heart, and we also have the gut. But in the brain, it's clear now that stress, for example, what it does, it actually unhinges, it blocks the clear thinking, which is the prefrontal cortex. And so the prefrontal cortex is where we also have a lot of creativity. So actually you're having a double whammy. You're pushing yourself, you're stressed, and then therefore you can't think properly. And what happens is that the prefrontal cortex or the clear thinking part of the brain gets offline because we're on the threat. So it can be a social threat. It can be a physical threat. Like you said, not enough sleep. If we sleep regularly and we have a routine of physical activity where we really regulate ourselves time and again, then it's okay. However, if you are not doing that hygiene, be it physical as well as mental hygiene, then you, of course, you are depleting the resources. And what happens? You get actually less, you become less able to access your clear thinking, which is exactly what you were hoping for. And therefore, you get into a vicious circle. I can, so I see. Mm -hmm. So, so one way this could express, for instance, is that I'm. So I'm thinking how this connects to the structural things in the industry. But if we say that that something, something serious but solvable goes wrong in my mm -hmm. project or in my on my shoot or something mm -hmm. like that, the uh, my because it's connected in my mind. I know if we are not able to to solve this problem today, it might reflect poorly on my. On my, way, on my ability to employ myself in years to come, for instance. If I mess this up, I might become branded as the person who had this disaster happen on their watch, Correct. essentially. And that means that it puts a lot of additional pressure on the specific situation. And ironically, then, if, if I understand you correctly, that will make my logical thinking abilities less uh, clear or less available. Right. So I will actually become less good at solving the problem. So which I would have maybe normally been able to solve. So actually I might create, the fear might become a self-fulfilling prophecy as well. Exactly. And in addition to that, I suppose, if, if as you're saying, the creativity also is lowered, then I, have, I can only rely on my past experience and on other similar solutions I've seen before, instead of perhaps thinking of something new that I could if I was calm and, and rested and not terrified. Correct. You revert to your uh, habitual ha patterns mm. that have worked in the past, but because the new situation is not solvable necessarily with your old behavior, so it gets even worse because then you build up even more fear and more stress, and it becomes, a, like you said, a full self-fulfilling prophecy, but also it actually... One la language that I like to use is self-sabotage. Huh, You're yeah. actually self-sabotaging yourself by moving into that. And, and fear, obviously, is one of the biggest drivers, and it is very powerful. It's said that it's between three to five times more powerful than a positive thought. Huh. And so how can we think ourselves out of a fearful situation? And that's when rational thinking just goes offline. 
you and then you do also what everybody else does uh, in a way which is exactly. very inconvenient uh, again in a in a work situation where everybody is is suffering or laboring under the same kinds of fears in in different ways so i suppose right. in any practical situation we'll all also just make each other each other more stressed exactly uh, and we so, are social animals yes. so we are always picking up on what the other person's basically energy or uh, joys are less contagious, but they are also contagious. So I have a concern here, which is that in our cultures generally, we, we tend to consider um, mental health to be an individual issue. And even in countries where, for instance, we have very good public health care systems, when those were constructed, uh, historically mental health wasn't on the agenda in the same way as physical health. So, so even in a lot of those uh, countries, it, it has sort of remained... Um, mental well-being and the mental health, which is, as we now discussed, directly connected to physical health and also to productivity, it still sort of remained in the in the sphere of the personal or the individual responsibility. And a lot of these problems don't sound to me like they're solvable in on the individual level. At the same time, it's also important that there are things that we can do individually. And I don't know, how do we start to think about I guess if I'm in an impossible situation, I have to begin with what can I do? But the solutions on the structural level need to be outside of me. So I don't know, maybe we start with what, what can I do? What, what are some things where I can actually affect my situation? Exactly. And, and there's, in my mind, there is a big problem with what we call stigmatizing. Mm -hmm. In the past, we were stigmatizing against physical handicaps until we realize that's not necessarily a handicap for life or for flourishing or for thriving. And the problem is with mental, let's call it well-being, unfortunately we're using not dysfunctionality but functionality, uh, it is also stigmatized, we're stigmatized against it. Now this is why I use mental fitness, because mental fitness is exactly that capacity to recover and respond with a different quality which is not necessarily fear-based, but is more stable. So that's one of the places that we really can make a difference. Once we understand our own processes of where do I get fear? Now, of course, if you have a, let's say, a good, safe job environment, that might be giving you a little bit more security, a sense of, okay, I can go back to work. I don't have this physical threat um, that could happen. Now, that's obviously in the film industry is, is very much different. So that's why it does not surprise me that in this environment, there is a higher degree of um, well, threat and therefore self-harming. But I do think, um, and the self-harming obviously is just a response to basically you don't know how to get out of it. Yeah. And so for me, it's very clear that we need to develop mental fitness in order to become aware what are the environments as well as the relationships doing to me. Yes. And I should probably say here that self-harming, it doesn't have to be, you know, cutting yourself. It could no. be destructive drinking. It could Crap. be disrupting your food. You know, there are many kinds of, and of course, yes, all the addictions quite a lot of ways of, you know, that you can sabotage for yourself as a kind of emotional release almost, yeah. And, and one of the issues is that we also think often that actually relieving the symptom, mm. a short-term intervention like drinking for, uh, or, or then becoming repetitive about it, rele releases short-term issues. It does, absolutely. The problem is the consequences are yeah. long-term mid to long term you isolate yourself you actually bring yourself out of the one of the networks that help you support which is the social network uh, or you start behaving in ways that are uh, erratic and therefore people start sh uh, stymieing you or, or yeah. even avoiding you or i just you know i drink to be able to sleep and then there is a there is a brain chemistry cost even the next day or two days later which may, even if it's just you got four hours in the day when you were not particularly smart because of some brain chemistry reason, even that is a big cost in a high stress environment, even if you don't develop a drinking problem over time. Right. So, yeah. yes, this is very difficult. And I, I mean, I see what you're saying. So I guess then, okay, let's let's say um, if if some of us who are listening now are thinking, oh, I may have some of these behaviors already. 
clearly I'm at risk. H- how mm-hmm. do I increase my mental fitness? Uh, obviously, it's not something that you can learn from one day to the other. And particularly, and this is what, where we often fail, we, once we think we understand it, we think we have it under control. But understanding is not enough. I know, for example, how to bake a cake. I know it needs some eggs, it needs some flour, it needs some water and, and some heat. And there we go and then basically just mix it all together. It's not going to be a cake because we don't know the procedure. And then once we have maybe mixed the, the dough properly and we put it in the oven, and we get impatient because this bloody cake is not coming. So we double the heat in order to half the time. It doesn't work like that. And so, yeah. so we really need to be appropriate. And I'm saying that as a, as a precursor to what I'm going to be saying now, which is we need first and foremost to develop a routine that is basically holding back on our habitual patterns. And that's basically making breaks, stopping, and really stopping, as opposed to once we have a stop, we complement it with TV or with the WhatsApp or... Or a break uh, in the workday and we're using that to answer email. That's not a break. Exactly. Yeah. I really mean a break. And it's clear now that we know that there are certain behaviors that are conducive. And this is why I mentioned at the beginning, it's a skill. Mental well-being is not something that just happens. It's a skill that we can learn, like we can learn to write. But we need to know how to do it and what is the sequence. And the first step that we need to become aware of is what are the self-sabotaging processes that I'm doing all the time? What is it that I'm continuously doing that actually appears to feel good, but actually in the long term undermines me? And then once we have this self-sabotaging process, like this voice, I'm not good enough, the the inner critic. And so I I work exactly with this type of of processes, first and foremost, so that we identify our own inner critic sabotage processes and how do they appear. And we are able to hack it a little bit, as you were saying before, about those physical things. I mean, so the exercise really does make a difference and having taking real breaks really does make a difference. Even I suppose it would be good if we had like a lot of real breaks and weekends off and things like that. But even a minute, I suppose, is better than than nothing. Absolutely. And making sure that we do get sleep, we can build up some resilience because I think to some people it will feel overwhelming, like, oh, I don't have time or space to do exploration and change. So then you need to, to find some resources to be able to at least take that one minute break. Absolutely. And there there are graphs, for example, for people, maybe you want to look, look it up. It's the healthy mind platter. What are the mental qualities that we need to cultivate in order to have a healthy mind? And one is physical exercises, then time where we focused, but not necessarily on a fulfillment from external, but internal. Hmm. Then also time where we connect with others. And when did we play really completely innocent for the last time? That is also creating new circuitry. Playing not um, at the kind of like competitively, but really just playing. Uh, And then also having downtime where we are not doing anything. And I don't mean compensated with WhatsApp, as I said before, but also just being and enjoying the beauty of a tree. We just have fall here and the trees are just exquisite at the moment. Um, yes. Maybe that's part of the answer. Is how are we not, like, how do we even function? And I guess part of the answer to how do we even function is that a lot of, of us who are in, in dif- are in different ways in creative work, so we do end up do, being focused on our own creative processes. That's part of the of the things that we often get to do. And and there are elements of at least playfulness, if not necessarily free play, sometimes built into part uh, of the labor as well. So so perhaps that's also something to think about, that those are those parts of our wor- work are just as important as the sort of... Absolutely. Yeah, and then, the others. And then just to finish the Healthy Mind Platter, food. What kind ah. of nutrition do we eat? Because it's clearly now uh, that the microbiome, the gut flora... The, the bacteria, they play an important role in our mental well-being. And why is that? Because the absorption of the nutrients 
and depending on what kind of nutrients we get, uh, it has an effect on that uh, balance. And then, of course, the sleep time. That's very interesting because I think that uh, as work environments, there are actually offer we're often in catered environments where where there is on a sort of company level or a production level, we can affect what people eat. So that's actually a practical thing uh, mm -hmm. that I think is a surprising takeaway from this conversation that we can affect. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm wondering about this thing about overwork. It's such a clear parameter, and and in this industry, there are situations you're maybe on your seventh draft of your script or or maybe you're in production with a film sometimes you're gonna maybe you know that they're almost inevitably sometimes you will maybe work 60 or 80 hour weeks for a month or or even longer if i know that i'm heading into a period of a period like that what should i be doing before and what should i be doing after uh, i i agree that uh, 60 to 80 wor uh, hours work weeks is just not sustainable uh, but that's I like to take an analogy of the sport people, because in sports we have really clearly identified what is necessary for high-performing sports people. And we all, of course, we only see them in, in Olympics or at uh, the, the peak of their uh, physical performance, but they take breaks and they take enforced breaks and they have to take absolute breaks they they should so that's in the lead up even during the performance um it is necessary now of course in an environment where you're performing highly working so long hours what do you do you take coffee you you smoke cigarettes and they're all basically not conducive to good sleep so you're uh, or resting so in the lead up one way to do that is basically train train breaks train breaks and keep training breaks and maybe depend not be dependent too much on those substances that actually activate you and then of course after the whole uh, period take breaks high performing athletes they all know how to take breaks and that's unfortunately it sounds like counterintuitive but it's clearly one thing that has had to be um honed in in every athlete i love that you say this because it makes it sound cool you know because now oh oh like but i could be my me operating on a very high capacity for a while yeah it's like i'm a super athlete and and i of course i will need rest and recovery like that's a framing that is just narratively so much more nice than i am failing at life which is exactly. what it might feel like otherwise yeah that's why i call it mental fitness Mm -hmm. And it's bodily fitness as well as mental fitness needs to be catered to. And there are many factors that lead to that. I mean, of course, you're not going to always have uh, one type of training. Mm -hmm. That's not good for the joints in but the physical domain. Yeah, yeah. I, I, there's, of course, the, the difficulty here is that in a gig economy, you, we don't always control when the next project starts. And right now, there is just such demand for everyone in this industry that very many people go from Sunday to Monday to from one project to the next with no recovery time at all. And sometimes they don't have the financial resources to make other choices. Mm -hmm. But sometimes it's always also that fear, you know, you, because if that's when it starts, that's when I have to be there, you know, or, or maybe I wait two months. But I guess, of course, in this economy, maybe I don't wait two months. Maybe I would wait three weeks and then the next project that, I, that would be available to me starts. And, and then actually that's a pretty good time to do like my rest and recovery discipline. Right. Yeah. Look at the Facebooks likes or the Instagram. Yeah. People are really fallen for that. And yes, I also understand clearly that when you don't have a physical safe environment, then that gets even worse. And this is why also the Me Too movement ha came up, because that behavior of, well, okay, well, I'm not going to hire you if you don't, whatever, mm -hmm. do this or be like that. So, or so, work 16 hours, but I mean, even mm -hmm. more if there's a threat of physical violence, of course, right, yes. Right, right. And so that's, I would say, is more the systemic issue. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, when, when in Locarno, I was basically speaking with one of uh, a very famous producer, and she was saying that um, uh, one of the things that 
people need to have on their set and on her sets, it's always that people have a possibility to basically address when things are not okay. Yeah. And I like that idea. And so maybe have an independent place uh, that you don't feel any retributions and you don't feel threatened if you go there uh, to say, well, things in this way are not okay. Obviously, the person in charge of that needs to be reliable as well as trustworthy. Um, and that, of course, trust is one of the most delicate uh, qualities. And it's a mental quality. It's not a physical quality. And We power is... Um is clustering very much on the top of these artistic and 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 um, and functional hierarchies uh, on for instance a film set and, and in this industry and then if the person if a person on the at the top is a problem it becomes very very difficult to do anything about yes right, right. Uh, but that doesn't mean we don't have to and i think this is where it also this is this other concern or i i guess maybe it's a point of hope really is that this is a business issue It's mission critical, especially now when it's impossible to get crews and talent and, hmm. and we're competing for all the best projects. And there really is a market where the best project can go anywhere. You know, having a good reputation as a, as a work environment that doesn't break people is actually a business asset. It's a Absolutely. competitive asset. And in addition, you can't afford people breaking in the middle of a production because replacing someone halfway through is very, very expensive in time and money. So even if you happen to be a kind of person who might be listening to this, who is saying that this is some some soft, you know, this is personal stuff and people should just, you know, be, shall be responsible for sleeping for themselves or something like that. This is also a business issue. And I don't think we can separate them. I mean, Either. if you talk about sustainability, uh, you, you touch obviously many levels. I mean, there's the environmental su sustainability, but also individual and also production sustainability. And yes. it's clear, why would you want to work with somebody who is basically a bully? Mm. Uh, you you better work with somebody that is not a bully. So if your reputation is built around being a person that is really great to work for, Well, you're not going to have issues around that because everybody will come to you. Now, that's a skill that even the producer or the person that is in charge of anything, of the set or of the, the team or the catering, you will want not to just be basically performing well, but be disliked. But you want to be performing and be liked for. Yes. And as you were saying at the beginning, this actually in, a, in an environment which is without fear or with very little fear, people will be operating better. People will be better at their jobs. They will be solving problems more efficiently. They will be predicting uh, problems and preventing them before they happen. So on every level, you're also going to get a more functioning practically, but also a more creative work environment. And then again, that becomes a positive cycle of trust. Solving difficult problems together successfully Correct. builds trust very efficiently in people as well. Yeah, and that's, that's, I think, where really mental fitness, and I just use that because it doesn't have that kind of like pathology side. I mean, all yeah. of us want to be healthy, very few ones. And of course, we, we start having habitual behaviors that are not healthy. And we, I think everybody of us knows when things are not so okay, but we kind of are just, oh, okay, for the moment we can neglect it. On the mental level, you cannot because yeah. it will continue to creep up on you. And so mental fitness is, how do I respond? Do, what do we want to be? Do we want just to be rich and famous? Or do we want to be a person that is helping others? And so it's clearly that the status question here becomes an issue. Yeah. And I do think in the film industry in Europe, a lot of people, most of us, I think, in some way we work we, because we find it meaningful. Mm -hmm. So that is an asset as well. That's a gift that we have that can help us make right. positive change, I guess. Uh, we're running out of time. I could talk about this all day. I mean, this is fascinating. <laughs> I do talk <laughs> about I, it all day. <laughs> yes, exactly. I guess, I guess there's time for, for, for like a final recommendation. What, what would you say would be the most important change that we should start with? What could that be? For me, it's really becoming aware of what are the factors that lead to flourishing, not just surviving. 
and of course flourishing is when we're creative when we're joyful when we are uh, loving caring um, and I mentioned already creativity but also when we are uh, basically thriving yeah now become aware of that and what are the obstacles and then work with the obstacles not by suppressing them but by overcoming them and having tools that allow you to do that internal process that's fantastic uh, i think many of us believe in our hearts that we're working in the best industry in the world mm -hmm. from this perspective which is also i suppose why we stick around even though in practice we're very often not working in the best industry in the world at all so i think we can see that yearning like the potential of flourishing uh, and that's, I guess, what we should move towards. Thank you so much uh, for taking this time to talk to us today, Diego. It's Thank you very much for allowing Thank me this so opportunity. Much. And I look forward to hearing more and maybe even support. Thank you. Bye. After this fascinating talk, we are now ready to move on to our next guest. Laurence Lascari is a film producer and was one of the participants at Locarno's step-in think tank, looking for paths towards less dangerous, less toxic, more inclusive and healthier cultures in our film industry work environments. She is also co-president of France's Le Collectif 5050 and has received national honors for her services to the film industry. Laurence, welcome to the show. Thank you, Joanna. So in this conversation with Diego Hangartner that I had just now, we discussed the Looking Glass study from, from the UK film, TV and cinema industries, which was released in early 2020. And it had some shocking numbers about, about how terribly um, the pressures of, of the British film industry are affecting the well-being of the people in it. Would you say that we can assume that the structures and the consequences are similar all, all across Europe? Definitely. I can speak about France. And what I can say is that until uh, recently, the, the prevention of uh, psychosocial risks and the improvement of um, well-being were not really a, a topic in our industry. We were globally in the belief that cinema and TV were different, different worlds. And we believed also that we were lucky enough to do jobs that we were passionate about. So there were professionals that had the, the reputation of being uh, bullies, but most of the time there were no prosecution or uh, the, the victims were told to hang on. And also they were uh, afraid to to lose their jobs or and the pressure was more on the, the victims than the abusers because that's the, the, the question of the, the distribution of the power. So those yeah. who were in power uh, basically have all rights because a whole economic system was depending on them. It's also horrible because when the scale of what is accepted or at least not punished goes all the way to actual criminal behavior, then of course... There are other, you know, like we are exhausted or and there's other problems that are serious problems, but they are relatively so much smaller. If you're thinking, well, at least I'm not getting sexually harassed right now, so I suppose I should be grateful. And then that, that creates a very skewed image of what is a normal work environment. Yes. And the, the normal <laughs> back, uh, back then was and still is unfortunately, most of the time, is that the, the, the best interest of the film should necessarily prevail and uh, over any other consideration. And, and that's, that's artistic how, interest yeah. then, yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes us all kind of complicit of the unhealthy uh, working environment. In the European cultural tradition, we have a really strong internalized norm that connects artistic practice with suffering. We have this idea that poverty and discomfort and sacrifice will maybe make you a better artist. And uh, I, I mean, I guess it's probably true that having powerful, difficult experiences in your life might at least give you stories to tell and having to fight for your vision probably might make it clearer or something like that. It's it's also becoming scientifically very obvious now that living in fear does not actually make you a better artist. Like It doesn't make you more creative or more productive or anything like that. So I don't know, how, how would you say that these narratives that 
you know, we're a storytelling industry, but we also tell ourselves stories about ourselves. And how present are they, would you say, in our in our cultures? Uh, it's true that we have the storytelling of the damn artist who uh, suffers for his art, and that's what makes great art. But I think we are in 2021 and we can no longer nurture this kind of belief because we have data, we have studies that show that the better your your crew and your team feel at work and the, 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 the best energy they, they can put in work. So hopefully, but this is something that we must advocate for. We need to create a better work environment for our teams. The, this study from the UK was based on pre-pandemic numbers, and I know that they're going to to make it again. And 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 again, they interviewed over or they they, they surveyed over nine thousand people, so it's very reliable. Um, but until we get the next uh, version of that, based just on your experience, how would you say the situation has changed during the pandemic? I think that the first thing that has changed is the working from home situation because. Uh, it has become the new normal now, and uh, it has impacted uh, all company. Because before, beforehand, working from home was mostly a topic for large companies and organizations. And now it concerns us all, even the tiny uh, festival, uh, non-profit, or even companies such as mine. We are uh, seven in my company, and it has impacted us uh, a big time. On a very personal level, uh, I had a baby one year ago. And before having my first child, I was in the belief that I had to choose between being a mother or uh, being a hardworking a professional and successful entrepreneur. And I realized that the working from home gave me a great sense of freedom. And I felt that I was dedicated to both my son and my company. At the same time, it helped me to understand the, the importance of the human well-being in the office. Because I was so focusing on, I was so focused on my son, trying to put uh, all the, the the financing together to produce the next film, and also changing the world with a collective fifty fifty. <laughs> that I was not really concerned. I was not concerned enough about the, the well being of my team, and mm. one of them complained. One member of my my team complained that she felt that she was, I was not paying attention to her. So that's how I realized that it's important also to to ensure that the team understand the vision, they know where we are going, and uh, also to pay attention to the sign of suffering because for some of them it was a very um, it was a source of um, a lot of anxiety not to know what the, the future was going to be, even for the company. Uh, we we mm. evolved in a very stressful environment. And as a, a, a small production company, a small independent production company, you are basically at danger all the time because you don't know yeah. if you are going to be able to raise the money for your next project, if you are going to be able to, to pay the salary. And during the pandemic, which is not over, but hopefully we were able to go back to, to shooting and producing. There was so much uncertainty that, um, yeah. and, and we're not built the same. So I was trying to cope with that. And sometimes I also felt very uh, anxious and uh, even depressed in a way. And it affected, and I, I didn't realize how much it had affected some of my crew members. And that there is a yeah the culture of are we allowed to talk about how stressed we are? Does that make us more stressed, or does it make it safe, us safer? There are questions like these that we haven't historically. Mm -hmm. I mean, we haven't historically done that, so we're going to have to learn the skills of how to do that as well. I think, on the team level. Yes, and you can I, do it in a very simple way. For instance, uh, during the beginning of a of a meeting, we do weekly meeting. Mm -hmm. And me, I'm the type to be focused on work, work and work. But <laughs> I have learned also to ask the, the team, how are you today? How, how do you feel? But like, and mm -hmm. meaning it, 
so that everyone feels that it's also okay to have feelings, to share them, and to feel uh, like safe to, yes, to share um, any kind of feeling. In our previous conversation, uh, Diego made like a core observation. I'm trying to summarize it and, and see what you say. He said that a lot of uh, in this sector, a lot of our work, it places us under different kinds of pressures. Uh, physical pressures, uh, like lack of sleep would be one, um, or, or physical fear reactions to the uncertainty. Uh, financial pressures, uh, such as the concern that we might not be hired again if we set the boundary or if we fail at a task or something like that. And also social pressures. So we have these cultural norms that we will all work a million hours or, or that you have to accept a certain level of bullying or harassment to be able to continue in the industry. And inside the human brain, apparently all of these pressures contribute to to basically shutting down functions. So when we are under these pressures, it makes us less creative, less logical, and less able to solve problems. And, and what, this, what strikes me about all this um, is that this is not an individual health problem at all. It becomes a collective problem. It becomes a business problem. It becomes an artistic problem for every production and also across, across the industry. And also, I mean, I suppose it has to make our industry less attractive to, to young talent. It makes our productions more expensive. It makes us artistically weaker. And I, I'm feeling a little bit overwhelmed at like, where do we begin? So, so maybe we start here. How aware would you say right now that the industry is of, of all of these mechanisms? Like where, what's our starting point today? Mm, we are so behind. Than the, <laughs> I'm sorry, but the, this is true. Like, yeah, we we I've been to many uh, panels, discussions, and this issue in particular is very new. I don't know what is your experience, but to me, it's very new. And uh, in the in the normal world, I would say like they've been discussing for that like for decades. So we are really behind. And it's true. You're right when uh, um, about uh, the, 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 what you just said about uh, being pragmatic and uh, understand that we need to, uh, because they don't, <laughs> this is not an industry that pays a lot of money and it's, become, it's becoming more and more uh, uh, difficult. So if you don't have the, the money, you you don't have the the, the well being, uh, the passion won't last, because mm -hmm. because at some point the 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 the, the, the talents will leave to do a, a a nine to five job and uh, that pays more money and and so forth. And I'm I'm not talking of course I'm not talking about the the visible jobs, uh, artistic jobs, production jobs that put you on the light. I'm talking about all the rest. The, the, the people that works in office or the uh, the crew members that are invisible. So we need to ensure that the industry is able to, to keep its talent. And actually maybe even some of the visible jobs, because I'm, I'm thinking we've had this mystery for some time, at least in the Nordics, half of the students, half of the, you know, screen, half of the, certainly half of the directors that come out of the schools are women. But by the second film, a lot of the women have disappeared. And we were all going around saying, oh, it's a mystery. What happens to them? I think after Me Too, we know what happens. Yeah. Like, it's yeah. just, it costs too much. It's, yeah. you don't, it's hard enough to have an artistic career at all if mm -hmm. you're facing a lot of additional pressures. And of course, that we know that the intersectional mechanisms here are, are, are ruthless. Anything that makes it harder mm -hmm. makes it sort of impossible. And then if, yeah, if you're talented and, and driven, why would you take that? Why would you stay? You know, and maybe some people feel they have to. But if you have any other thing that you can imagine doing, I think I get, I understand why people leave. And that's not how I want this to work at all. You know? and, and that's why with the collective 5050, uh, we advocate for a more gender balanced uh, industry, not only in the position of uh, directors or uh, a scriptwriter, but also to any other jobs, uh, because we believe. And we know that uh, having a more gender-balanced crew uh, is also going to, to fight the toxic masculinity that's been around for years. And um, how we do that is that we manage to launch a, a parity bonus 
So the French film agency is going to give extra money to the producers that are able to prove that in the key position, for instance, DOP, sound engineer, uh, producer, uh, line producer, and so forth, uh, costume designer, and so forth, we are able to show that there is a gender-balanced team. So it means that a film can be directed by a man, but also be eligible to the the parity bonus. So this is an example. We also produced with the European Commission a campaign in order to show the the jobs that are mainly uh, masculine in order to present a woman having male masculine jobs. And uh, it's in order to show role models and uh, to... um, it's a way to to foster diversity and inclusion in the film industry by uh, portraying those women. So this is another example. We also we're working on a white book in order to prevent and to um, uh, know how to manage harassment, and sexual violence in the during production. Uh, and to achieve that, we've been working with union representatives, other organizations, public authorities. And now the, the French Film Agency also had made mandatory for all producers to attend a training on how to address harassment and uh, sexual or gender-based violence. It's the, all of these initiatives are fantastic. And I, I of course... I mean, I, I think it's particularly amazing, but also heartbreaking that that that's needed, that kind of training. Because in a lot of European countries, and this might not be as you know, obvious everywhere in the world, but we do have a lot of, of just like workplace safety laws that should also already cover, mm. you know, all, all of these practices have been addressed on a regu- regulatory level literally decades ago, but we just have been unable to live up to these goals. It becomes, I don't know. Yes, but maybe it's not as in a regular company, you see the same people throughout the year and you, and you can, you can build policies and so forth. During production, you work with 99% of freelancers or actors that, so there is difficult to, to build a unique policy. So we need the the public authorities, we need to training, and we are also working on a a larger training, not only for, for the executive producers, but for every member of the crew. We, we need to train the, the people on set who is going to be in charge to prevent uh, harassment. uh, So there is a lot, a lot, a lot of work to be done. But you're right, of course. I wasn't thinking, (laughs) I forgot that, oh yeah, like a lot of other industries are structured differently. And you're right. But I think also this is interesting because the next step in a way, this is about policing like actual crimes in a way and preventing them. But then, yeah, prevention becomes about what kinds of company cultures or what kinds of uh, local work cultures do we actually want. So that's about positive Yes, design in a way. But here, an individual producer, I imagine, like you, you probably have actually a lot of power over how do we work on this shoot. Do you feel empowered to create a different workplace culture for yourself? Or or do you see resistance from your crews? Yes. And uh, as the co-chair of uh, Collective 5050, I I am at the best place to, uh, Mm -hmm. to learn and then to put in practice, and this is what I I did with my with a film that is currently shooting uh, and, and that I executively produced. For instance, I asked to the crew uh, to for a volunteer to to be the referent, the anti-harassment uh, referent, so that if there is a problem, all the crew know who to to talk to. And I had to uh, to to set up a meeting, and it was kind of uh, kind of uh, stressful in a way. It was during it was the first day of shooting during the lunch break, and they were, they were all minding their business, and you feel that you are the annoying person <laughs> at the moment. <laughs> yes. But I I took this opportunity to address all of them and to to express my strong uh, commitment to uh, fight harassment and that no form of abusing or bullying is going to be tolerated. I had to try to put some uh, humor in my speech so that they, so that I I don't know, 
it became something normal. And the thing that yeah. was positive about it is that I, I had the, the total support of the director because the the real <laughs> the real boss on the set is the director. So it it was important to me that uh, he supported me. And also in the contract for every contract that that was signed, I mean hiring a contract, there was this uh, clause that stating precisely that uh, no form or ha harassment of any kind were to be tolerated during the, the, the shooting. So if every single producers put those policies individually in place, think that is going to help uh, big time. I, I'm thinking two things that are kind of the opposites now. One is that it's kind of cool. I mean, one upside of having a very kind of hierarchical industry is that the people with the most power if we know that a, a, a toxic or bullying a director can be an enormous problem, then it's also the opposite is true. A person who is constructive and who is invested in creating a positive culture also has the power to create a positive culture. Um, the producer can do it on the level of the project, but you are right also, and that's the opposite thing, unfortunately, that on set it often is the director uh, who formally and informally, but certainly informally, I feel, has the sort of highest decision-making and culture-making power. So I then, I guess, in the European context, we have to ask ourselves, do you feel that author cinema or author-focused, author-adjacent cinema, you know, is particularly sensitive to these problems? Mm. Yes, because there is a greater sense of danger so that people can be asked to uh, to hang on because, for instance, maybe you don't have put all the money in place or maybe uh, artistically it's very challenging. And so that um, there is, uh, I think that there is more pressure because there, um, it's another kind of pressure that just doing your job at your the best level. There, is, mm, there yeah. are other things that come in the conversation and uh, yes I think that and it's also like more borderline because it won't be by the book on the yeah. bigger production <laughs> the, the, the freelancers are going to be less tolerant because they know that there, there is money so they won't hesitate to, to be more challenging, uh, more demanding for the safety uh, and, and, and so forth. But of course, it doesn't mean that um, they are going to be protected and that nothing is going to happen to them. But I, I, I have the feeling that, yes, it can be more challenging. I see what you... Yeah, so there's a lot of things that are happening. One is, yeah, of course, that if, if it's more experimental in method or in expression, there's a certain level of uncertainty that comes with that. If it's a smaller budget, there's a loyalty to the project that comes with that, which is so strong with us. And also, yeah, in a way, I suppose that this idea that you have a... a then you are in, you're in the service of an individual's artistic vision to a much mm. higher degree also... So your job becomes, in a way, to keep them happy. They have to be able to work, and that's more important than whether I'm able to work, I guess. Yes, and there is something more um, about that comes to, uh, I don't know, affect, affection, that that is also uh, at stake. And you, you don't want to disappoint uh, your filmmaker. But in comparison, if you are doing a job because uh, that's your with less uh, passion and being less personally involved in that project, then you won't, toler you won't be less uh, tolerant. I, yeah. I so it's, once again, and I think, I feel like we, we were touching on this a little bit with Diego as well, and now it's even clearer to me that, that the very thing that makes this industry so appealing, you know, that we are allowed to work in meaningful context with a lot of passion, that's also the exact same mechanism that allows us to work under terrible conditions yeah. because we are ready to sacrifice so many things, not just to be able to get the next job, which is a structural challenge that's really important, but also just to be able to, because we're in service of the artistic project as well. Yeah, I think you mentioned early on that, that, it, that the supremacy of the artistic vision can get in the way of, of making changes in these things. Do you want to talk a little bit about what kinds of challenges that can be on a practical level? 
Yes, sure. For instance, we are having a conversation uh, in France right now about the intimacy coordinator. Yes. And, um, there are some um, people, um, filmmakers, or, or so forth, uh, that they say that the, the, the director as the, <laughs> the almighty uh, person on the set should know. He knows or she knows. And an intimacy coordinator would affect his or her freedom of creation. But it's funny because there, there is no discussion, for instance, when there is a, a stunt coordinator, for instance, on set. Yeah. There is no discussion. Right. So why would that be uh, for the intimacy uh, also, literally, we're working in an art form where limitations are the mother of, cre of creation. I, I mean, and there are, when it comes even to a sex scene, it, throughout the history of cinema, we have been working with limitations about what you are allowed to show and how, like, the, you, never in the history of cinema outside of pornography have you have the freedom to, to show physically intimate interactions without any limitations mm -hmm. at all artistically or in manners of taste or in manners of morals or in manners of law, there have always been limitations. Oh. And now it's a problem when it's helping the actors. Mm. I, I, I find it very difficult to sympathize with this mm. perspective, but I, I, damn it, I, I see what you mean. I see how that could be an issue. So then that actually goes kind of back to the idea that, so there's an ideological shift in a way if we're saying, no, actors also are a co-creator of this film and their ability and every crew member's ability somehow to operate on a high level of artistic competence and integrity it will make the outcome better. Yeah. And, the, and that is slightly, slightly in some ways in conflict with the idea that the director is a god who will always know and whose idea will always be better than anybody else's idea or limitation. I don't know. You're a producer. I think, I think it must be in your, it's, it has to be your job to say no to directors quite often. Yes, kind of. Uh, or sometimes say yes uh, in order to obtain the no. <laughs> yes, yes. Where, how do we change this? I mean, do we wait for these people to age out of the industry or do we... Or is it possible to show somehow? I mean, I guess maybe they just need a good experience of working with an intimacy coordinator so they can understand that it unlocks something positive. Not, it's not a, a, a limitation. I think it's a bit of both. Of course, uh, it's a generation issue and um, the younger filmmakers are more open to uh, having uh, that discussion. But at uh, the same time, uh, you have many established filmmakers, for instance, uh, Jacques Audiard, who were able to uh, also ask for help uh, for those, uh, those scenes. So I think um, it's evolving and... Um, as the collective 50-50, our job is also to give uh, the to give tools to create them if they don't exist, uh, so that we are better at doing our jobs. Because it's not only about filming, directing, uh, lighting. It's also uh, how we how we create is is also important. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. And, and perhaps that's where we should end. I, I, I feel like it's very thought-provoking to me that Diego kind of landed on this idea that we have to self-monitor. We have to become aware of what are the patterns that I do where I sabotage my own performance and my own creativity and my own joy. Like, what would it take for me to thrive? And I think maybe this is also pointing at a similar thing in the industry, which is we have to look at how what kinds of stories and ideals about the artistic process are sabotaging us from working, from thriving artistically. And that's also as important in a way. Uh, and the outcome, of course, would be that films would be best. If we say that you're allowed to sort of send in some thought into the world, where would you begin changing? What's the most important thing for all of us to do next? Uh, it might sound corny, but what I've learned is that the systemic change starts within ourselves. And uh, this is what I am trying to uh, experience every day because as an entrepreneur, I'm fully dedicated to my company. I work day, night, during the weekends. And um, I try to remind myself that this is my choice. 
and um, I have to ensure, for instance, when I I I'm thinking of something and uh, I feel like sending a text, I have to uh, to to stop for a second and ask myself, do I really need to send this text on a Saturday? And uh, if I do, for instance, I prefer a mail so that uh, my team can they can open open it whenever they want. It's less uh, intrusive than a text. I I do make sure to mention that I don't expect an answer until the I don't know the next day, the next Monday, or whatever. Mm-hmm. But um, yes, it's when you hire someone, it's important to feel that the person is highly motivated. But you have to. Make sure that you don't ask for the impossible. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. I think, yeah, everybody has a has power over some some little bit of the industry. And you're right. That's where we've got to begin. <laughs> this was amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you, Joanna. I was very happy to be with you. That's where we will end the podcast today. Thanks again to our guests, to the Goethe Institute for supporting this podcast from the European Film Market, and to Locarno Pro for collaborating on the content of this episode. If this episode made you think of something special, please do drop us a line in any of our channels. If you're not a subscriber already, do hit subscribe on your podcast provider or look us up at www.efmberlinale.de. That's www.efm-berlinale.de. And if you really like us, rate us. That helps others find the show.